KYW Original Podcasts. The Coronavirus Pandemic from KYW In-Depth. I'm Matt Leon. I mean, this is a crazy time we're going through, but it's not unprecedented. About 100 years ago, 102 to be exact, back in 1918 into 1919, there was a a flu pandemic that spanned the globe. It was deadly. It was awful. You see some similarities to where we are now. Not nearly as deadly. I want to make that clear. It's not the, the mass death that we saw 102 years ago. But as far as the contagion, as far as the global reach, as far as the effect it's having on society, there are similarities. So I was very interested in trying to tie together where we are now, reaching back into history, thinking about that, learning that the Muter Museum had recently done an exhibition, and it's actually still there and it'll be there when everything opens up again, called Spit Spreads Death, the Influenza Pandemic of 1918-1919 in Philadelphia. And it's kind of eerie, actually, that they did that six months before the COVID-19 outbreak. So I reached out, got a hold of Dr. George M. Woolwright. He is the president and CEO of the College of Physicians of Philadelphia. We talk about the effects in Philadelphia. If you roll your eyes at the idea of social distancing now, listen to what happened 102 years ago, and you will get it, why it's important. We also kind of talk a little bit about Uh, the exhibition and all, but a fascinating interview, a fascinating history lesson that will uh, give you a lot of information for where we are today. So let's start with the basics. Take us back 102 years and kind of give us some idea how vast the 1918 uh, Spanish flu pandemic was. It was almost certainly the worst plague in human history. And I suspect because it was so large, it has not engraved itself on mass memory. Everybody knows about the Black Plague. Everybody knows about things in the Middle Ages. Everybody knows about the plagues in the Bible. But until COVID-19 hit, people were not really aware of the 1918-1919 Spanish flu. And as you certainly know, Spanish should be in in quotation marks, because it certainly didn't come from Spain. But there's a reason why it has that name. And it was actually because Spain was neutral in World War One, So they were one of the few that actually kind of reported on it. Uh, honestly, am I correct? That is true. So sometimes there's a downside to being too honest and too open. The best of our knowledge and belief, it probably started at Camp Funston, which is part of Fort Riley in mid-Kansas. So this is, I mean, there's debate about this, but essentially this is homegrown from the Midlands of the United States. What made this so bad? And I don't mean that the outbreak, but specifically this strain of the flu. Do we know even to this day why this was so deadly? We have some good ideas. We're not absolutely certain. I think the easiest way to look at it is there had never been a strain of this type of flu before so that most people who had had seasonal flu or other similar viral illnesses usually build up some type of immunity, 
But for this, there was no antecedents. So almost nobody had any specific immunity or even partial immunity to this virus. And I mean, this was devastating. What, as close as we know, how many lives did the, this pandemic capture? When I give you the number, most people sort of shrug and don't believe it. The lowest estimates that I have heard from reasonable people are between 30 and 50 million people worldwide. And I think one can make good arguments that there may have been as many as 75 to 100 million deaths. How much was this pandemic turbocharged because we're in the midst of World War One, so and it's trench warfare, and once it gets into Europe, I mean, you've just got soldiers spending days within inches of each other. How, how big a factor was the war? I think the war was a major factor, both in Europe on the battlefields where soldiers are in trench warfare, cheek to jowl, the best way to spread a respiratory illness, uh, with not wonderful sanitary conditions for, for toileting oneself. But the war also on the home front was a major cause for the spread and the rapid and virulent spread of this disease because people came together for the most patriotic of reasons, which led to the rapid dissemination of the disease. And I'm sure you know the story of the famous Liberty Bond Parade in Philadelphia. That's my next question. Uh, we, we've heard so much about social distancing and it, the importance of it. And really, you know, in 1918, Philadelphia was actually the example of what not to do. Uh, talk about that parade. And Philadelphia, am I correct? Highest death rate of any major American city? Yes, that is true. If one thinks about the war, and it was quite different from more recent wars, in that there was absolute uniform across the board feelings of hatred towards the Germans. And I stress that because doing everything for the American cause and for the cause of the Allies took precedence over everything. So raising money through Liberty Bonds was considered absolutely essential and an absolutely essential patriotic act. Parades are things that people love. People come out for parades. They come out in droves. Think about, you know, the Eagles Super Bowl parade and then magnify it. That's what a Liberty Bond parade was like. And, and if you want me to go on with what happened, people were aware, physicians were aware, public health officers, except maybe the head of the U.S. Public Health Service. But most public health service knew that something very bad was going on and that it was very contagious and that you shouldn't be standing next to people. And they warned the city fathers, the mayor and people like that, don't hold the parade. But that was tantamount to saying, don't be a patriot. Don't support our troops. Don't support our boys over there. So they went ahead with the parade. And given at that time the incubation period for this influenza was about three days, three days later, 
all 31 hospitals in Philadelphia were overrun with patients, and essentially it was a logjam. So what are, how did they handle it? Was it just mass death, or were there anything they did to, to try to deal with the overrun and such? For all intents and purposes, and of course there are people who debate this, the city came to a stop. Essential services stopped. Uh, social services stopped. There certainly weren't any formal you know, social net or economic net type of practices in place at that time. So people were essentially left to their own devices. People were dying at home. Bodies were being taken out and stacked up like cordwood. But it was well-thinking citizens, some from the main line who came in, some from the city, who rolled up their sleeves or rolled down their sleeves and went to work delivering food, delivering whatever medicines were available, nothing specific for this thing, uh, providing firewood, providing coal. So this is volunteerism at its very, very best, filling in for what was essentially, in my opinion, a government that ground to a halt. We are inundated with information, and we can have discussions of how much people are following the instructions and stuff like that. But were, and you talk about how health officials in the city, there were people that were aware. But from the federal level, they pretty much kept their hands out of it, correct? Yes, they did. And there were those who poo-pooed the seriousness of this flu and just said, and this is documented, and we've seen that recently in our own current situation, but there were federal officials who said, that's eh, nothing more than a bad cold or this is just run-of-the-mill seasonal illness. Whether they knew better or not is up to some interpretation. There is, as you certainly know, misinformation and disinformation. We talk about flattening the curve, and obviously Philadelphia in 1918 is the example, almost the textbook example of what not to do. But there were cities, right. there were certain cities that took it seriously. I think I've, I've seen a lot that St. Louis really went the lockdown route, and they were able to, make, to, to, to handle it. Am I correct? That is often the example of direct comparison to St. Louis to Philadelphia. You know, it's always the question of whose ox is getting gored, and it's always an awareness that what's good for public health is often bad for commerce. St. Louis got together, the city fathers, you know, it was mainly men then, of course, city council, the government said, we have to do something. They took what was seen by some as draconian measures and by others as appropriate measures and, and did it and did it quickly. And the consequences in both mortality, which means death, of course, and morbidity, which means illness, was far lower than Philadelphia. I, I would make an analogy with, with what Dr. Fauci said a few days ago. If you do something that seems really out of sorts, you're probably doing it too late anyway. Uh, and you're not going to know until later. So did, did it ever hit a point where it got so bad that you had the federal government kind of, of dig in? Obviously, it was too late to, to do anything. Or did this thing just run its course and run its course? It essentially ran its course, but 
And there's, I think, a lesson here for us. It was essentially two waves, or people mainly talk about two waves. Uh, it went away in the spring of 1919, but then came back in a virulent way in the fall of 1919. So there were really two waves of it. And that's been talked about now as when this dies down, and it will die down, uh, it could very well come back, uh, you know, and be quite uh, devastating. But there's no way to know in advance. How did what eventually led to this strain of the flu not being a problem anymore? What what makes it go away? Enough people have it or a slight form of it and develop immunity to it. So the human reservoirs of the disease and people who have it and are spreading it, there are fewer and fewer of them and fewer people uh, who are susceptible to it. In other words, it's developing a herd-like immunity. Uh, Some people don't like the expression herd immunity, call it community immunity. It's one of the reasons we give vaccines. If 90 to 95% of people are vaccinated with an effective vaccine, they won't contract the disease, so they won't be probably spreading it and others won't get sick. But if less than that either have the disease or are vaccinated against it, then it is still quite likely that it can be spread and promulgated. Going back to 1919, you mentioned they had the second in the, I think you said the fall of 1919, the the kind of the second wave. Is there any indication that that was handled better? I can't give you, I can't give you an intelligent answer. Okay. But I, I think people were aware of what was happening and people were aware of how to mitigate it. So it was better in that sense. They knew about isolating people. They knew about uh, secondary problems. They knew that most people didn't die from the virus itself, but died from secondary infections and could take quicker steps, even pre-antibiotic era, to uh, mitigate the effects of the viral illness. The museum just did this exhibition, Spit Spreads Death, the influenza pandemic of 1918-1919 in Philadelphia. And I think you guys put it out in the fall. Do you? How freaky is that to you now that you guys were, were putting this out uh, six months before all this happened? Well, let me also say that in addition to that, we had received a grant from the Blue Cross Blue Shield Foundation to do an update of the city's emergency preparation report from 2006 with one of those authors on preparing for the next pandemic. It is ironic that we didn't get that report done in time. We're actually still working on it, but are going to use COVID-19 as the introductory chapter. Uh, I think if you look at the report yesterday about the Crimson Contagion simulation, I think it's very difficult. I'm a psychiatrist, by the way. (laughs) I think it's very difficult for people to actively deal with the possibility of really bad things happening. You know, when it's a bright, sunny day, it's very difficult to think that you could have a flood, you know, or a tornado and could be devastating. So we have tended 
not to devote resources, either time, money, materiel, to truly being prepared for things that are statistically quite likely to happen. And if you were to ask me, well, doesn't that cost a lot of money? My response to you would be, so do battleships, so do or aircraft carriers, so do ballistic missiles, so do all sorts of things that you hope, including fire engines, for example, you're never going to need. But if you do need them, you want to have them. And at some point, societies have to decide what do they want to prepare for and what do they not want to prepare for. I think we are seeing clearly with COVID-19 what we could have learned from 1918-19, that if we had better preparation, uh, if we had larger stockpiles of masks and gowns and face shields and ventilators, of course, which are much more expensive, uh, we could respond much more quickly. And just so everyone's aware, this exhibition, once life gets back to normal, it's still going to be uh, at the museum, correct? It's going to be up for many months. I, and I think... If not years think, at this point. Well, I, I think we're going to see the opposite of uh, social distancing and coming to see this exhibit. Though people may be a little shell-shocked from what's going on with COVID-19. That's it for this episode of KYW In-Depth Coronavirus. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll be back with another episode soon.